Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. So we're starting a new challenge today. We're calling it a challenge because you need to be challenged. If at the end you weren't challenged, you need to come and say, I wasn't challenged. So it means we have to up it a little bit. And we're talking about how Jesus changes lives. We'll bring a little bit of why in it. You may know that lives are changed. Um, there's always a what, there's a how, and there's a why. And we're going to look at how he actually does that and how is he doing that in you. Getting the hows is a, a really important thing. So I'm going to ask Paul a few questions about how Jesus changed his life. And the first thing I want to ask Paul to describe to us, because sometimes you can look at people like Paul and think, well, you've always been like this. You've always known Jesus Life has been simple. I, I remember praying for someone once and they, I can't remember what they were going through, but they shared something and I said, oh, yes, I've experienced. She said, oh, have you had problems in your life? I said, I have actually, yes, and uh, continue to. So, Paul, describe to us what it was like before you encountered Jesus, what you were like. Well, before I met Jesus, I was a silly young boy and uh, I started year seven at a big public high school. And uh, on my first day of high school, I had the the great glory of getting the cane and being the first one in year seven to get the cane. Not the last time that happened either. Um, not long after that, it may, maybe a year or so after that, I got the cane again for um, throwing water bombs at a Christian speaker who came to speak to the school. And uh, as I was running away, I got nabbed and got to know the principal pretty well. First name basis, you know. And then around about year 10, the end of year 10, um, I had a good bunch of mates. Um, my best friend at school got me into playing AFL footy. Any, any AFL people here? And yeah, come on. It was uh, the years before the Swans moved to Sydney, so it wasn't a big comp in Sydney, but uh, I was playing AFL. And I guess when I look back at those years, the word that really describes those years for me is the word angst and it's an interesting concept it's a mixture of anger and frustration at life and and purposelessness and not not knowing what what you really what life is all about and um I had a lot of angst and and that expressed itself on the footy field um in perhaps some overly enthusiastic tackles um and it also expressed itself in some language towards the umpires, which was not that wholesome. You know, it was a bit like if I touched a ball and it went through the posts, then the umpire should have known that instead of giving six points, should have given one point. And when that happened, I would call the umpire a cheat and this sort of thing, you know. So there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of angst in there. But then around about the end of year 10, the the group that I was in, they started, we, you know, started having parties and uh, there was a lot of alcohol and drugs happening at the parties. It was the mid-70s. And I, I just looked at what where my mates were going with it and I just couldn't 
plunge into that lifestyle. I, I looked at it and I saw how destructive it was for them to the point where th- there was one night where, you know, I thought, looked around, where's my mate? And uh, I knew he'd had a lot to drink and I went outside and I found him rolling around on the ground, vomit all over himself and this sort of thing. And I remember thinking at that point in time, if this is the best that life has to offer, what's the meaning and what's the purpose of life? What's it all about? And I even wrote that in my diary at the time. What is the meaning of life if what what's happening here that these guys are into is, is really what it's all about? So that brought on for me a bit of a crisis of meaning and purpose, purposelessness. And so it was really I, – I was just a, a lost – young guy with a lot of questions and a lot of angst. So how did Jesus actually change you from that person to bring you hope? Well, I met a bunch of Christians, as you do, and Pastor Sue was one of them and uh, her sister. And the the difference in those guys to the life and the, the friendship circle that I was in was just so huge. They had this joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's, it's a long story, but they had this joy that I thought, how can they be so happy when things are going so wrong? And they also, it, playing footy, uh, I had um, taken some skin off my arm you know, diving for the ball and it got, my arm got infected and my glands swelled up and so on. And Pastor Sue and this bunch of Christians, they prayed for me. They, they got around me and I, I'd never had anything like that happen before. And the interesting thing is I didn't get healed. I had to go to hospital and get a injection, but something changed in, in my heart while they prayed for me. It was like all of a sudden I had this feeling that there was someone who loved me, that there was a God who actually cared about me and he knew me and was personal. And that set me on a journey towards knowing Jesus. And then a few months later, a friend from school took me to a youth rally and the man out the front spoke about Jesus and he spoke about how uh, Jesus loved us so much that he, he, he was willing to take our sinfulness and take the punishment for our sin and he said if you want to become a Christian come down the front here and so I pushed past my mates and they're all going Westy where are you going get back here man what are you doing but I just knew that I had to go it was like God took me by the shirt collar and pulled me forward and as I went down that aisle this is how I felt I felt like I had a backpack full of bricks on my back And that every step I took as I went down that aisle, it was like God took another brick out of the backpack. And I know he took anger. He took frustration. This is looking back on it now. I know what it was. There was anger that was going. There was frustration that was going. There was guilt for the stupid life that I'd lived that was going. There was the shame of, you know, thinking I'm a bad person and so on. And God could never love me. All those bricks just came out of my backpack to the point where when I got down the front, I was like just like I was floating in in this encounter with with Jesus and that changed my life. And I'll just say, just fill in a little bit, we met, my parents took me and my three siblings on a coach camping trip to Central Australia and uh, there was a couple of other girls that we met there who were Christians and there was this boy sitting at the back of the bus with his dad and his 
brother and we didn't know his name at first. We called him Red because he had red hair. And uh, and I, I really the first time we I think we talked was when we got to Port Augusta and it was pouring rain and they said, look, no coaches are going to get through to um, to Alice Springs. And Lee and I and these two other girls we met went to the, the um, band rotunda in the park at Port Augusta with my guitar and we sang It's a Happy Day and I Praise God for the Weather. Does anyone ever know that song? Yeah, it's a good song. And um, I thought they were nuts. He thought they were nuts. nuts. And he, he walked past and he could see him looking at these four girls sitting there and thinking they're really weird. And um, But we talked and we were the only coach that got to Alice Springs. Yes, so we praise God for the weather. You don't know what he's going to do. So, Paul, final question is, when did God finish transforming your life? Yeah, look, it probably was about a month ago now. Is that right, Audrey? Oh, hang on. No, hang on. <laughs> last, Yeah, it was last night. Actually, you know, he's never finished with us. And as I said before, look, I kindly thank Sue for putting me up on a pedestal today here on the thing, but don't do that. Pastors are like anyone else and we have our struggles and we have stuff that we know that uh, is is not, um, you know, not honourable to God and, and it's, it's a lifetime journey and it will be over when he comes back to take us home because there's a, I've got a long way to go. And I've I got to tell you that this is one thing that I've found about being a Christian. The closer I get to Jesus the more I realise actually how far away I am and how far I've got to go. That's just the way it is. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're talking about how Jesus changes lives and I really want to hone in on the how because I think there's a danger that you can look at someone whose life has changed and you can long to be like that. And what you can do is you start to imitate them, which will only take you to a certain stage. But something has to happen on the inside, like behind the scenes. Like Graham and I were on, on a cruise in January and because I love the performing arts, there was a really good team of people, singers and dancers, and etc. They did great shows. And then one morning you could go to a behind-the-scenes meeting if you wanted to and then you got to go backstage. And so Graham wasn't so interested I was so I went and uh, I love to go backstage and say how did they actually pull this together how did they do this in this confined space and then it starts to I just love that and then when you're dreaming of new things you can do you think that's how they did that and you will you'll find that for something else in your life that you're really fascinated about how did that guy get to be such a great goal kicker how did that person get to be so good at a particular skill and the how is, is actually really important but I want to start off with a, a story of someone who's very well known in Christian and non-Christian circles his name is the Apostle Paul and he's He's written most of the New Testament is his letters to different churches, and but I just want to go back just a little bit before that, just to give you a bit of a picture of what was happening. Because when the early church first started, on the the day that the Holy Spirit fell, and the, and you can go and read about this in the first few chapters of the Book of Acts, the extraordinary things that happened when three thousand people gave their lives to Christ. It's an interesting. You've got to just think of these words: "I give my life to Christ." It's more than just saying, I've got a new philosophy now. It's actually, I give my life to Christ. That's what they did that day. They were baptised and the church started to grow. And as it started to grow, you can read different stories in the book of Acts of what happened to these people, which was 
changing society and has continued to. And you and I can now sit with the benefits of this and not realise how amazing it was. So some of you, who went to school when there was no air conditioning in classrooms? And now classrooms have air conditioning and it's taken for granted. And um, someone, there were a lot of meetings to get air conditioning in classrooms, see? And now you just sit there and we sit in here with air conditioning and we think it's, it's normal. You can get very used to great things that are normal and, uh, and so we have got used to a lot of great things that Christians have um, brought into our world that's bring, brought change that started with Jesus. So the first thing about the early church was actually multiracial, which was phenomenal, and everyone was equal, which was even more phenomenal. People of different social standings, men and women, which we, you can't even imagine what that would be like. Women could not imagine what it's like to be a woman back then in the first century. So many things that we have become used to it was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. This was really hard for people to take because this was the time when um, revenge was the sign of great power. Now, we don't like leaders who act with revenge. We look for leaders who are humble and honest. And Jesus was the first one. And he gave his life on the cross. And he was totally humble and totally forgiving and totally all about reconciliation. And to them, it looked weak until this group of people started to follow him and they became a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. It was um, a community was famous for hospitality of the poor and the suffering, regardless of who they were. And the Christians were even known for going out when there was a plague and they would bring people into their homes at the risk of losing their own lives so they could care for them. And it was a community that was committed to the sanctity of life and babies would be dumped on garbage heaps and they would rescue the babies. And this was all totally counter-cultural. They were beautiful. They were a community that looked after each other's physical and emotional and spiritual needs and people hated them. And one of the reasons that they hated them as well was this good news of Jesus says that faith in Jesus means your sins are forgiven. Now, you might think, oh, yes, that sounds nice. This is revolutionary because every other religion has things that you have to do to appease God to have your sins forgiven. And we do it to others as well. We are like that. No, sorry's not enough. Have you ever heard anyone say that? And I just hope they go to, the pris to prison for the rest of their lives and get everything that they do. That is how people think. And therefore we place that upon ourselves even in religion and think probably I haven't done enough to appease God even for, for who I am. And yet now we have Jesus who says, believe in me and it's all forgiven and forgotten. And it sounds a little bit, arrogant to some people who've worked all their lives trying to get rid of their sin and we just have faith in a God who loves us and says it's all forgiven if you give your life to me. So they were hated, really hated and particularly hated by the Jewish religious leaders of the day because they were, they just regarded them as blasphemous actually, just blasphemous. So starting the story there in the book of Acts in chapter 7 there's a story about a guy called Stephen who was a, just a faithful follower of Jesus. He was out telling people about Jesus and people were loving it because everywhere they went, great joy was coming. It was like relief, joy, love was coming into their communities. And um, Stephen, as he's preaching, these Pharisees or religious leaders are standing there and they're really grumpy with them. And he starts to tell them that their problem is they're missing out on what the Holy Spirit is doing. And they just uh, represent a long line of prophets who kept missing out on what God was doing. And so it says, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They, they put their hands over their ears because they believed that they can't even listen to this because it's so blasphemous. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who eventually is called Paul. So they lay their coats at his feet, meaning you are, we honour you, you're our leader. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. He's known as the first person to be martyred for their faith in Jesus. Now you see in Stephen something profound. His life was just not an external transformation. Do you know how you know what your transformation is like? Is when you hit a bad patch in life. That's when you know actually what's really going on in here. And what you see him do here is, firstly, they're all railing against him and he looks to Jesus. He doesn't look at them and try to fight them, just looks to Jesus, sees Jesus. And then what comes out of his heart is the same thing that came out of the heart of Jesus when he died on the cross. Because Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen says, don't hold this against them, Lord. And you only know what's in you when you face a big challenge like this. You face a big challenge and then you find, I wasn't as forgiving as I thought. I'm full of bitterness. I didn't realise it was still in there. And so otherwise you can be in a nice community of Christians and you can all do the nice things when everything is nice. But what are you like when the rubber hits the road? What is the inner you? Is Jesus transforming your life? Whereas Adrian, I think Adrian's here somewhere, he's leading the five o'clock last week, said, do you like who you're becoming? Is actually, are you going through a process of transformation and you look and think, wow, I actually used to be like this and now I'm, I'm like this. I used to be impatient. I'm, I'm becoming more patient. Things happen in your, are things happening? It's got to be an internal transformation. So that's what's happening with Stephen. Now let's go on with Saul. So Stephen has been murdered and it says in chapter 8, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He thought that was a very good idea. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women. Significant, because sometimes you would just take the men, but in this case he can see the men and the women equally are being influential, so we need to get all of them out and throw them all into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Here's the astonishing thing. They're being thrown into prison, they're being put to death, but this good news is so life-transforming to them that they just can't help sharing it everywhere they go, even at the risk of their own lives. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. 
Many evil spirits were cast out screaming as they left their victims and many who had been paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So extraordinary things are happening and the the church is just rapidly growing and people actually starting to love each other, to forgive each other, to be generous as as Stu was reading out before, to be beyond generous to other people, to accept masters and slaves treating each other as the same. And yet Saul hated this and it goes on to say, In Acts 9, meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath. That's just a powerful image. Like it means he was consumed with anger and rage against these Christians and he's made it his life's mission to destroy these people. And he was eager to kill the Lord's followers, not just sort of fight against them, actually to kill them. Can you imagine what rage you would have to have in you to say, I despise these people so much. I will devote my life to killing them. It's huge rage. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way because this is before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now he is... A very important man, a highly educated man, a wealthy man, a respected man in ways. A lot of people follow him. A lot of people agree with him. And he actually has really in their society, he's reached the pinnacle of what everyone valued. If you translate that to our society and think, you know, what is the pinnacle of what we value? That was him. Well-known, famous, wealthy, powerful and zealous in what he was doing. And he was going around murdering people at a rapid rate. But he actually had some good qualities as well. He's a disciplined, passionate, strategic leader who doesn't give up. And he can get a following pretty quickly, even to do disastrous things. There's a word for sin, that the Greek word is hamatia, and it means the fatal flaw in the hero or heroine of a tragedy. When you look at a tragedy... The reason it's tragic is because they're doing really, really well and you love them, but they have this, like their Achilles heel, you know, their weakness. And I think if you look at your weakness, if if you're brave enough to say this is my weakness, you also find that God will redeem that to be your greatest strength. Greatest weakness can be your greatest strength, but it can be the thing that brings you down. And you look at his weaknesses and on the flip side, his strengths on the flip side, they can be his greatest weaknesses as well. Don't analyse that so much in yourself, but have a look in others, but have a look at yourself and see how God wants to take that. And he wants to, he wants to use you in a way that sometimes people will think it's your weakness. He can turn it into your strength. And so the story goes on for Paul like this. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission... So he's going on this mission and he's got greater authority now. A letter from the high priest, permission to arrest and destroy. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he's got this great man, everything in control. He's got his letter from the high priest. He's got his followers on his mission. has been really successful. And suddenly 
he is knocked to the ground and he's blind. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here's this great man gone on this mission to Damascus where he's going to come in looking like full of praise and glory and he's led in by the hand and I believe it says by the hand to show how pathetic he would have looked coming in and he's taken into the house of a Christian actually. How risky this man who was coming to destroy them and could have been a trick and they took him into their home and this man who's been a murderer and a hater and someone who thought he was pleasing God. And this is the scary thing. He thought he was pleasing God by doing this. And all of us have to be aware of that, you know. All of us can have a bit of a pharisaical part of us where we're so set on I'm right and everyone else is wrong and the only other people who are right are those who think I'm right. could be like this because you have blind spots but you don't know what they are. And he's brought to the place of utter humility. And he doesn't eat or drink for three days. And someone came to me this morning and said that they got some recently some really bad news about their health and they're wondering what was going to happen in their life. And, they, and she said, I could hardly eat or drink for three days. Maybe that's what he was going through. What did he go through in those three days? I'm sure he didn't just say, oh, okay, I was wrong. Like he's now going to be humiliated in this whole known world to think I got it wrong. I thought I was following God and I'm I'm wrong I'm actually wrong and now I'm blind not knowing that in three days he's going to get his sight back okay he's blind he could be blind forever humiliated and the shock would have been huge for him but something happens in him and he changes some Jesus changes him and when I was looking for verses to show okay let's find a few verses to show how Paul changed and what the sorry what the change looked like Well, my goodness, I could have sat here for the next day reading out the verses to you that shows you how he, what what his change looked like. Here's a couple. So, as I said, he wrote lots of letters to people, and just think of this murderous, angry man. And in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes this to them: "I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his Spirit." then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow, da- will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The same man is full of the love of God and praying for it. And he writes this from a prison cell. Whereas he was throwing into prison people into prison once, he's now in prison for his faith in Jesus. And he writes this letter of beautiful love to the other believers. To the letter at the church of the church in Philippi, he says, I once thought these things, and these things he's talking about are his wealth, his power, his education, his leadership. I once thought these things were valuable. What do you think is valuable that you have? But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just hearing about him, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's only when you know him that the other things became, become worthless. If you sit here and you answer, think, think, consider that question, you think, mm, but I still think they're really valuable. Don't try and not think of them as valuable. That won't get you there. Think about how well do I know Jesus because they will only look valueless to me when I fully know him. You can say, as a good Christian, I must say this. No, just encounter Jesus. It's a big difference to saying, I've got to sound spiritual by saying, yes, I think all these things I have have no value. If you don't really believe it, don't say it. But as you encounter Jesus, they will lose their value. You just strive to know him. It's like Stephen. Everyone's stoning him and he looks to Jesus. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. It become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. And then in his letter to the Romans, he writes this astounding verse that tells you a lot about the sort of person he became. He says, I would gladly be placed under God's curse and be separated from Christ for the good of my own people. What love is that? Could, would you say that for anyone? I would gladly be placed under God's curse for the good of and put in someone's name at the end. That's incredible. That is, that is incredible love that this man has encountered. And, I, and, and until you encounter the love of God, you can be in danger of just trying to enjoy the fellowship of other believers and even copy the good things that you see people do. But until you've personally encountered him, you may not be having the change on the inside, which is what he is giving you by his Holy Spirit. You could be imitating. And the only time you'll know is when you hit a difficult patch in your life. And you'll see what actually comes out when you hit a difficult patch. Because truly, we all know the right and the wrong things to do. But what actually comes out of you when you hit the difficult patch? And so I want to dig down really quickly, if we can, into how how Jesus did this to him. And then consider you, how is he doing things for you? And, And the first thing is, it's something about authority here. Because... It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the voice goes on to say, why are you kicking against the goads? And goads were sticks with spikes in them that farmers used to push the oxen along when they were ploughing their fields. And um, and Jesus is saying to him, you, you're kicking against the goads. I'm trying to lead you somewhere and you don't want to go with me. And so basically he gets, he gets struck down. And here he is in this position where he actually thinks he's in power. He has power and control. He's even got a letter from the high priest. He's got followers. The whole, the whole legal system is going with him. He's getting these Christians. He's throwing them into prison and no one's saying don't do that. He's having some of them put to death and no one's saying don't do that. He's got this mission to Damascus. He is in control until he's not. And you and I live under that same illusion. You think you know what you're going to do tomorrow. You might already know what you're going to do for lunch today. You might even know what you're going to eat for lunch today. You think. You think you know. You think you know like Bureau of Meteorology thinks that they know what the weather is going to be and they don't always know. Sometimes it's wrong and sometimes it's right. And so you can... um, have this illusion of control. 
until something goes wrong, when I say wrong, something happens in your life that you didn't want or didn't plan for. And at that very moment, we often say, why did God let this happen? And Saul could have said this at this moment as well. He probably did say that. I'm, I'm on a great mission for God. Why did he let this happen to me? And when this happens, this could be the gateway to the greatest blessing in life that you've ever experienced. This could be your moment to soar. This could be your moment to see incredible breakthrough. This could be your moment for God to do things in you and through you that you never felt possible. This could be your moment to, for your family to be blessed. This could be a moment for your life to be blessed in some way that you never thought if you stopped kicking against the goads. And when it comes to a difficult circumstance like he had, he, he had choices he had to make. And he had to realise, first of all, that he wasn't in control. And that's what we need to realise. And when God brings us to that point of helping us realise that he, we're not in control, it's not, it's not as a punishment thing, it's a liberating thing. What a relief to find out you're not in control of the world because how were you going with running it anyway? Even your own life, you know, you're not that great at it. And so, and it's, it's stressful to try and be in control of everything. Have you noticed that? If you ever lay in bed anxious about something, it's because you think you're in control. And you're trying to find a way to solve it. And God is saying everyone needs these moments where we suddenly realise, oh, my goodness, I can give it to you because there is a why, there's a what, there's a how. God arrests us in a sudden way. But there's a why because he loves you. He actually wants to bless you. The only reason he came is to love you and to bless you and to give your life meaning and purpose. And so there's this first thing about authority, to recognise that he actually has all authority. And it, and it does say in the scriptures, Paul actually writes at another time, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. There will be a point where everyone realises that he's in control. Many of us fight against it most of our lives. The second thing he sees is incredible kindness because he says, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I'm Jesus that you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. Wow. Not, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting, and boy, am I angry with you. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting, I'm going to punish you. None of that. I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. In fact, this kindness and forgiveness to him is mind-blowing, and that is one of the reasons that he is so transformed, because he experiences God's kindness, his grace, his mercy. And if you are struggling with kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness, truly the only answer is, for all of us, me included, is that we haven't experienced fully the kindness. Because once you've experienced amazing kindness, you will give it in bucket loads to other people. And if you're delivering vengeance and hatred and bitterness to other people, it's because of this. You haven't been transformed fully by his kindness. It's his kindness, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of his letter to the Romans, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But that kindness starts when you become incredibly self-aware, where you stop putting up all the barriers to say, everything is everyone else's fault and I'm not responsible for anything. Or just looking at your own weaknesses and being honest and vulnerable about them. You can only receive his kindness when you recognise you need his kindness. And many of us pretend we don't need his kindness because we're still think we're in control 
It's his kindness. And then thirdly, the thing that he experiences is, is the trust of God because here is this man who's been off murdering Christians and in three days what happens? He waits in this place for three days and he goes to this place, a man called Judas, a different one, who lives in Straight Street in Damascus. Don't you love that? I wonder if it's still there. <laughs> It's probably a straight street in Damascus and um, he stays there and then this other man called Ananias who's a follower of Jesus um, is told by the Lord he's got to go and pray for Saul and he's, he resists. He says, I don't want to go and do that because it could be a trick. But uh, it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. After taking some food, he regained his strength. See the incredible trust God places in us as human beings? Firstly, he trusts Ananias. Firstly, he trusts Judas, whose house it was, to bring him in and treat him with kindness. Then he trusts Ananias to go and deliver this message in kindness to this man who has been feared by all people. A kind message. And what does Ananias call him first? Brother Saul. What kindness. doesn't say, I can't believe it's you, and I hope you realise how wicked you've been. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit and you have a big job to do. Not, this is unfair, God. I've been following you faithfully for years and he's been a murderer and he's been wrong all these years and now you trust the good news with him and he does. If you think that you are not good enough for God to use your life in significant ways, look at this story here. And realise that all God wants is people who are willing and humble before him. That's how he changes our lives. He reminds us that we're in control. Therefore we say, I give my life to you because you are good and you love me. Secondly, we experience his kindness and we continue to experience his kindness. And the more we experience his kindness, the more he changes us. And thirdly, we're blown away by the fact that he trusts us. He trusts us to love people. He trusts us. To care for people. I was reading in a novel the other day. There's this, mo there's this moment, there's an elderly couple and the man is dying. And it's not, it's not a Christian novel, but he just says, I, was, I always wonder why I was here in this world and maybe it's to love you. And as I read that, I read that several times, I think it's really, it's a very simple thing. When Jesus said, we're called to love God and to love people. And there's people in your world and maybe they're there for you to love. Let's think of them now. Maybe they're just there for you to love. Family, friends, neighbours, co-workers, they're just there for you to love. And can you do a good job at that just for the rest of your life with the same kindness that God shows us? Just there for you to love. And who knows, you know, some he, he's gone on and he's, it, he would have been known in the history books as just one of those murderous leaders with an insignificant name. But he's known as a man full of love who would give his life for other people. And you may not be known in this world, in the history books, for what you do. Some of you might be. But in the eternal history books, you will be known for how will 
you experience the love of God and how well you shed that love with other people. And Jesus said, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We can say we love Jesus, but it's actually the fruit of the Holy Spirit within you that shows that you are being changed from glory to glory, as it says in the Scriptures, from one degree of glory to another. In other words, you're becoming increasingly like him and you won't become fully like him till you see him face to face. And, and Paul also writes to the church in Galatia, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against these things. And you can ask yourself, am I changing in those areas? You know, you won't be perfect in them, but do you love a bit more than you did last week? Do you have a bit more joy than you did last week, a bit more peace, a bit more patience, a bit more kindness, a bit more goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And if the answer is no, because it could very well be because you had a hard week and you think, no, my patience this week is way down, way down. Don't just say I'm going to try and be more patient because this is what we all do and it doesn't work. It's the fruit of not your hard labour. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The key to being transformed is not to try harder. It's to give up. It's just to say, I give my life to you. There's been so many times when I've said, Lord, I really need faith for this situation and I don't have any. Can you please give me some? And he gives me some. Lord, I really want to rejoice in you at the moment. I feel no joy at all, but I really want to. Can you please give me the ability? And he does it. The key is not trying harder. The key is to surrender. And that's how the Holy Spirit changes our lives when we encounter him. So I'd like to, I'd like to ask the worship team back up and ask, let's all stand. Let's all stand for a moment. And uh, so I like standing because when someone important is present, um, standing is good. And, and our Heavenly Father is present by his Holy Spirit and because of Jesus, we can come beautifully into his presence and we stand in honour of him. And I just invite you to close your eyes for a moment and just reflect on that, that he actually changes your life. That is the what. He has the ability to change life. How is encountering him and why is because he loves you and he wants to give you an abundant life. He wants to bless you. He wants you to be a blessing to others and you cannot be a blessing to others unless you are fully blessed loved by him so i want to ask you as you're standing there is there anyone today who says actually i've actually never given my life to jesus I've just been trying really hard but today i want to give my life to jesus and let him do the work if there's someone here who feels like that today if you raise your hand i'd love to pray for you anyone in the room like that today thank you anyone else okay and what about you? Is there any part of your life that you would like to surrender to Jesus, that you could be a little bit like the Apostle Paul and you've hit a wall and it's a little bit confusing at the moment, but you'd just like to give it all to him and see what he would do? Just raise your hand if that's you. just want to surrender something to him. Great. So let's all pray together. All those groups, let me lead you all in prayer and Lord, we come to you and thank you so much that you transform lives. We cannot do it, Lord, and may we come and acknowledge firstly that we cannot transform lives. And the things that we do which we think are wonderful are often nothing and sometimes they're destructive. 
So, Father, we come to you today and we surrender our lives to you, some for the first time, some again and again and again. And may we be people who do this every day where we say, here it is again, Lord. I surrender my heart, my mind, my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And as you fill us, Lord, may you wash away all the stuff that is not of you and fill us with the stuff that is of you. That out of our lives may come the fruit of your Holy Spirit, not the fruit of our efforts, but the fruit of your Holy Spirit. May we surrender to your love this morning, Lord, and give us a greater picture of your kindness towards each one of us. Help us to see how incredibly kind you are towards us. Thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross for us, that our sins are forgiven, they are washed away as we bring them to you, and you forget them. May we forget them as well, and may we forget the sins of others. And may we be like Stephen, who was like Jesus, saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. May we too be a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.